Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant Church. So good to see you. Revelation chapter 16, as we continue our series, Unveiled Glory. Uh, We have a bit of a tradition here at Covenant. Every time we read Scripture publicly, it comes out of the Reformed tradition of Christian faith. It's a part of Reformed tradition that I really place a high value on, and it is when we finish reading Scripture together, and you will hear the speaker look up at you and simply say, this is the Word of the Lord. I like that because it's a reminder that there is, as Peter said, a more sure word of prophecy. You and I live in an age where we no longer have to wait on a burning bush or a message in tongues, though we don't deny that God can and still does those kinds of things. If we want to hear him speak, we all only need to open the book. And every single time we read scripture together, we're reminded of that by that really simple statement. But sometimes that statement can be a little unsettling. I think it was today. I felt it, you know. I mean, there's times when you're reading Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. This is the word of the Lord. You go, yes, right? You read Peter's uh, passage and his his incurable, you draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the word of the Lord, yes. You read Hebrews 11 and then you, you, you catapult into 12 on the basis of all those great men and women that came before us and therefore look unto Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. This is the word of the Lord, yes. And then Pastor Chris gets up today. (laughs) And he says, this is the word of the Lord. And I'm guessing there are more than a few people who went, "Uh, okay, okay. That sounded awful, didn't it? It just, (laughs) yeah, you can be honest. It just sounds awful. Here's what I want you to remember as we move through, because it is awful. There's some bad stuff in here. And we simply must cover it in order to get to the hope, okay? We just got to go there. Here's what I want you to keep in mind. This passage is both a slice of the larger picture, but it also brings to completion and culmination of that big picture. And so when we get to the end of all that awful today, we're going to see something glorious, And so we just have to keep in mind, it's the story told as it's been told at least two other times as we've moved through this letter together from a different vantage point. In fact, there's a movie, came out in 2008, Mrs. Rainey and I went to see it in the theaters called Vantage Point. Stars Dennis Quaid as a Secret Service agent named Thomas Barnes. And, and the plot goes, goes something like this. Barnes is on the president's protective detail. President of the United States is giving a speech in, at a city in Spain, large city. And in the middle of that speech, an assassin's bullet takes him out. Some seconds after that, a bomb that had already been planted underneath the stage goes off. And, and what those of you who have been in the military understand when I talk about this phrase, the fog of war, starts to ensue around all of the chaos. And so very early, very quickly into that plot, we're wondering what's going on. Well, that was because we're looking at it through the eyes of Agent Barnes. Then they rewind the tape and they tell the story all over again. But this time they tell it 
through the eyes of the president's chief of staff. And then they rewind it, and they tell the same story again, this time through the eyes of the actor Forrest Whitaker, who's portraying uh, a, a, a tourist who's in the crowd, an American tourist who's there to visit Spain, just happens to see the president. So he's in the middle of all this. And so this story gets told over and over and over each time, uh, adding little details that we did not have before. And then it ends with another Secret Service agent's testimony his vantage point of the story, and that one not only gives his vantage point, but it kind of buttons up the whole picture, and then everything gets revealed. It's like a curtain gets pulled back right at the end, and I remember all the gasps in the theater. Like it was just one of those on the edge of your seat. Pretty good flick. It might even be on Netflix this afternoon. So you, you may want to check that out. But I'm telling you the story not to get you to see another Dennis Quaid movie. I'm giving that to you as an example to tell you that's what we're looking at here. This is a slice, this is a vantage point, but it's also the vantage point. It's the vantage point. The seals were, told, were telling the judgment of God from the standpoint of the church. It was ask, answering the question, how are God's people experiencing these events? What do they see? Then came seven trumpets, same storyline, right? As I say, same hymn, different verse. But this time from the perspective of the people being judged, on the earth. Today we're going to cover a third round, seven bowls. And it is the final telling of these judgments that kind of wraps everything up. It allows us to step back and see the big picture and go, wow, there it is in all its fullness. And so to those of you who understandably at the beginning of this time together went, okay, maybe by the end of this, you can too can say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can do what our Reformed brothers and sisters have done for, for centuries now. You can respond to that with, thanks be to God. That, that's what I'm after today. That's what I'm after. And, and I think we can get there because this isn't just anybody's perspective. The seven bowls are God's perspective. This is how things look from the perspective of his throne. And so I want to move verse by verse through these with you. And then there's just some eternally weighty lessons that I think we can grasp as we get to the end. So let's start with bowl number one. Chapter 16, verse one says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So there are seven of these. First thing we're told, number of completion, completed judgment is coming and it begins with festering sores. The commentator J.B. Phillips calls these loathsome, malignant ulcers. Have you ever got an ulcer like in your mouth? You know the heart, you know the most painful, excruciating part of having an ulcer inside your mouth? You can't eat McDonald's french fries. Right? It's just uh, like, it, it's awful. It's really awful. You can't dip anything, can't have salt on anything. I mean, not that I don't retain enough myself, but you know, you just can't. So you've had like an ulcer. Some of you have had worse than that. Maybe you've, you've had some kind of, of ulcerous thing that, that's there and, and it just doesn't go away for the longest time and it causes a lot of pain. Maybe you had bed sores from having to be prone for a certain length of time because of recovery from some sort of surgery. That's what's going on here. And, and like so many other descriptions before in Revelation, this one takes us back to the plagues in Egypt, Exodus chapter 9, verses 9 to 11 specifically. And, and we'll remember that those sores were one of 10 plagues. And we'll also remember that those plagues have a target. It's, it's those who have identified with Egypt. Similarly here in, in Revelation, it's those 
who have identified with the beast. Not necessarily, I could be wrong, it could be a literal mark, I'm probably not. Okay, uh, but, but those who have by their lifestyle, by their choices, by their attitudes, by their dispositions, been marked on the right hand, this is my authority, on the forehead, this is the way I think, and they have allowed the powers of the earth to take control of one or both of those things, those people are the target. Now, we, we get into some debates here around the covenant family, even among our elders. We don't all agree with each other about how all of this is going to play out at the end of the age, and so if you are unlike your pastor, and you are what is called pre-tribulational, and you think the church is going to escape all of this, blessings to you. I actually hope you're right, okay? Uh, I, I won't be offended at all if you end up being right about this. But, but one, of the, um, one of the arguments that my pre-trib brothers often make when they say, well, the church can't be here for this, is they say, well, the church won't be subject to the wrath of God. And on that point, they're right. They're absolutely right. And we should understand that. We should take hope in that. For those of us who really belong to Jesus, you will never experience an ounce of the wrath of God. Take hope in that today. Some of you need to come to Jesus today so that you can have that hope. You will never experience an ounce of it. But that doesn't mean you won't see it. Because that was Israel and Egypt. If the parallel is correct when we look at Revelation, and we think reasonably that the first readers would have immediately gone back to Egypt and thought of the plagues that, that, that hit that nation. They experienced that. They were not touched. You remember the death of the firstborn? God said, I'm going to provide a way out for you. You kill a lamb at twilight, take its blood, put it over the doorpost of the home. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You'll be spared. You'll be spared. And Israel walked out of Egypt, not touched by the wrath of God. But they also walked out to the buzzing of flies over dead bodies, to the smell of stale blood and the shrieking cries of parents waking up to find dead children. They walked out. They were not subject to it. They saw it. And that's what we see here as well in very similar fashion. The target is those who have taken the mark of the beast. Uh, we, we covered this earlier again. Most likely it's simply symbolic of those who have exchanged the glory of God and his kingdom for temporary comfort. And in the context of Revelation, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth represent political power and influence and access. And, and, and this is how I'm, I'm going to get my hands on the levers and then I'm going to control the world. It makes life easier. Now I've got somebody who will permit me to buy and sell. But there's a lesson we learn in this first bowl. There's something worse than not being able to buy and sell. God is saying to the people on the earth, you chose this mark and now you're going to bear mine. And it comes at first in these painful, again, you ever, you ever had a festering sore that wouldn't go away inside me? Some of you even worse, you, you, you wake up from surgery to a wound that has to stay open for a little while and you're just waiting for the Vicodin to kick in. It's that kind of pain, except that relief never comes. There's no anesthesia for this. In fact, it only gets worse. John goes on in verse 3 to describe the second bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Another plague. This one also, reminiscent of Exodus chapter 7. Seawater becomes like the blood of dead men. It's coagulated. It's full of deadly bacteria. There's threat of further infection because of that. And again, God is saying, the beast 
gave you all of these resources in exchange for your loyalty. See how this connects with the earlier part of Revelation? You exchanged everything that I gave you because you wanted the temporary comfort of the earthly authority that was promising you. I'll trade Jesus for political power. I'll trade Jesus for influence with the authorities. I'll trade Jesus for immoral pleasures. I'll trade Jesus for sexual liberation so I can go to bed with whoever I want to and do it as whoever I want to be. That sound familiar? And what, what the Lord is saying to God's people here that those, those resources he gave you were not his to give. They are mine. And I am now taking them back. And I'm going to start with the very source of sustaining life. You can't live without water, can you? That's what's meant to be portrayed in this imagery. That continues with the third bowl in, chapter, in, in verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So what you see in the saltwater supply, now you see it's corollary in the, the freshwater supply. And then comes an interlude. So it's like all this judgment just starts all of a sudden, and it's like pow, 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 and people are like, whoa, you know, I feel sucker punched. What's going on? And so just before the rest of the plagues come, there's this really brief interlude, and there's a message from one of the angels of the Lord. It comes in verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. So what's going on here? Well, ancient Jewish belief held that God appointed angels as guardians over various parts of the created order. Okay, some of you have wondered. I've been asked before, do I have my own personal guardian angel? Well, that actually comes out of some Jewish thought. Well, is it true? Does it come out of the Bible? I don't really think so. But because the Jews believed it, John is latching on to that to give them a symbolic picture here of the one who is judging. And this angel says, God has brought this. John appeals to that belief to preempt any objection to, to what God is doing. We talked about this a little bit last week when we read about wrath and, and punishment, especially when it's expressed as graphically as it is in these texts, that we want to recoil against that. And we, we want to look at it again, almost we want to judge the wrath of God in the same way that we judge the wrath of man. And so our first response is like, oh, you know, like, this is awful. Kind of like we did when Pastor Chris read the text. Like, oh my gosh, what is this? What are we about to get into today? And, and we want to recoil because the temptation is to judge God in the same way that we would judge the wrath of man, to question the character of God, to say, I won't worship a God who does this. And, and admittedly, it's tough, even for those of us who want to believe, right? Part of that... Uh, Okay, it's the word of the Lord. Is I okay? I believe it. Wow, you know what? What do I do with it? That's okay. You need to know that 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 struggle is okay. It's hard. It's hard on me as a leader. I, I'm not Moses, but I look at Moses as an example of godly leadership, and I think about everything he did and and all of the sacrifices he made and everything he endured for 40 solid years until we get to Numbers chapter 20, and he loses his temper once, all right? And then God says, you're done. I, I'm done with you now. I'm like, <laughs> I read that story sometimes. I go, Lord, I... <laughs> If I had had those people to contend with, I'd have gone postal after year seven. This guy was faithful to you for four decades. This doesn't seem right. 
We struggle with that, don't we? We look at this and we go, what in the world? David rapes Bathsheba, murders her husband. And one of the earliest punishments for his sin, the baby dies. You're just like, what? I, what did the baby do? And we wrestle with these things over and over. Listen, I'm telling you, the wrestling is okay. The angel in this message is not telling us to, not to wrestle or not to struggle or, or not to question. The encouragement, however, is this. When you wrestle and struggle and question, you need to do it under the rubric of what's actually real. And he tells us here what's actually real. He preempts any protest with four declarations to the Lord. Number one, you're holy and nothing about you is impure or wrong. All right? If I thought there was anything impure about God and I watched something like that happen, I could just walk away. But I can't now. I'm bound to my creator because of his holiness and his purity. Number two, you are doing this. All right? There's no picture that, well, God would, it's actually humans doing this, or God, God didn't want any of this to happen. God didn't, God didn't, no, there's no attempt to get God off the hook because he ain't on the hook. Number three, it is right and just that you are doing this. Number four, those receiving your judgment deserve it. This is the message of the angelic messenger. You, you can struggle with this all you want. I think that's part of Christian growth in many ways. What you cannot do is deny that this God exists. And with that, the judgment continues. The fourth bowl in, chapter, in verse 7 says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So the next judgment comes with intense heat. About seven years ago, we went to the beach, and I did something foolish. I went out on the beach, and it was windy that day, and the sun was behind the clouds. Y'all know how this story ends already? And, and so I, I looked at Mrs. Rainey, and I said, put sunscreen on the kids. I'm good. I'm good. Now, what y'all don't know is underneath this shirt, I am Lily Casper the Ghost White, okay? <laughs> and and, and that, that don't match good with, with the burning South Carolina sun. And when it's behind the clouds, it can be very deceiving, right? Very deceiving. And so about six hours later, I've got sun poisoning. I'm laying in the bed in our hotel room, and I'm shaking. I got the covers up over me, and I'm shaking. And I, anybody, has anybody else been dumb like that? Please tell me I'm not the only guy in the room that's ever, yeah, yeah. You fa nothing is quite as painful, is it? I mean, nothing. And, and so... That's what we see here. Burning like that is incredibly painful. This is worse. And it's worse because of the level of a rebellion that it represents. Because just like in Egypt, God is asserting his rule in the plagues. He's taking back those resources that he has allowed the beast to control, that, that those who have been marked by the beast have, have taken advantage of and, and grabbed onto in exchange uh, for his glory. He's asserting his rule to take all that back. And in response to that, kind of like Pharaoh, the people on the earth in direct response double down and they refuse to turn from their wickedness. Paul reminds us that this happens every single day all over the world 
and it starts inside the human heart. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, says this kind of insane stubbornness is common to all of us. Apart from the, a move of the Spirit of God in our lives, it is endemic to our very souls. We will choose the wrong every single time without the grace of God. That's who we are. And then when God comes at us with that, we double down. We join into the insanity. Some people are living like this. And God reveals his wrath against it. Again, not the wrath of man, not uncontrolled rage, settled, immovable opposition to all sin and rebellion. That's qualitatively and quantitatively different from what we experience over here. And people are living like this all over the world. Yeah, probably the most glowing example we have seen of this in the past weeks around some swimmers in the NCAA, in case you haven't heard about that. Listen, I, you know what? You know how that kind of stuff starts? And then the culture war ensues, and now we've got human beings creating God's image right in the middle of it, and even the church doesn't know how to respond to it. The only thing we want to do is go into protective mode. But I'm going to tell you how that starts. It starts with an individual in their heart going, look, I know there is male and female. I know that there is an order. I know that God has set things in that order, but I know better. I feel different. I, I, I know you created everything, but it, it's kind of a new day. Listen, I'm not talking about lack of compassion. Let me say something, let me say something here. If you struggle with gender dysphoria, you got a home here. You got a home here. And, and we are doing everything we can to create the kind of environment in which you can be open in those struggles without shame. Because the gospel doesn't give you shame. And, and the Lord may miraculously deliver you from that, or you may struggle with it for the rest of your life. You've got a home here. We will flank you. We will protect you. We will walk with you. But i got to tell you something else. We cannot do that effectively if we lie to you. We just can't. We can't do that effectively. Nobody can love someone who's deluded if they merely join in the delusion. Okay? And, some, and again, in, in case you think this is all going to be about that subject, no, that's just the latest and the greatest that our culture has produced. But what we know, Paul addresses this in Romans 1 as well. It's not only those who participate in unrighteousness, which doesn't just include that kind of stuff. It includes lying. It includes slander. It includes hatred. It includes jealousy. Have I hit everybody yet, or do I need to throw a few more? Right? This is ever like you're habitually participating in this stuff. That's unrighteousness. And when you give approval to those who do, that's unrighteousness. Okay, so when you respond to something that God has clearly condemned on social media with, oh, that's beautiful, oh, that's brave, oh, that's wonderful, look, you are beautiful. Wherever you're at, wherever you find yourself, right now, you bear the image of God. Nothing you do or refuse to do can remove that image. That's all you need. That's all you need but you're going to have to align yourself with God if you're going to feel that, right? And so when you see somebody, this is another way. Paul says, Paul, I think if he were writing this in the 21st century, he would say he, his judgment is coming not only for those who participate in such activities, but for those who watch it on social media and push the like button. That's what's happening here, okay? That's what's happening here. No one can be lied to and loved at the same time. 
okay? And that, that's what we're talking about here. And, and I know you've spoken. And not just, not just regarding my sexuality, regarding the way I spend my money, the, regarding the way I treat my neighbor, regarding whether or not I give dignity to other human beings, even people that I disagree with. All that, you, when you suppress that truth, and then you experience the, the very kind of inflexible holiness and perfection and consistency with his moral law. And then having experienced that, you kind of say in your soul, it really doesn't seem like God's going to come around here. I mean, I thought he'd come around to seeing this my way. You ever been there? I have. And then you suppress it yet again. When that happens, when that's the pattern of your life, you're doing what these people in Revelation 16 are doing. And then when the consequences come, you want to blame God for what happens to you? This is the overwhelming message, okay? And this is why I tell you that this, as awful as some of these pictures are, is full of the hope of the gospel. There is not a soul on this planet who lives under the wrath of God unless they choose to. Not a soul. You run to him, okay? You go, wait a minute, but I'm really struggling. Then struggle and know that God loves you and know that God is for you even in your struggle. I talked about this with our athletes yesterday at, at, at Covenant Sports. We read out of the 139th Psalm. You know, David says, see if there's any wicked way in me. God, search my heart, right? God doesn't have to approach David. David comes to God. You know what that is? That's a picture of someone who struggles, who will probably struggle for the rest of their life, but they understand there's a God who loves me, and there's a God who will receive me, and there's a God who, because he loves me, will tell me the truth and will point to those areas of my life that are not where they should be and bring me to where he is. So I'm not going to run from him. I'm going to run to him. Amen. I'm going to run to him. And that's, that's the picture here. Right? You don't have to live under the wrath of God. Hey, you don't understand. I got issues with alcohol addiction. I got issues with porn. I got issues with this. I got issues with that. You bring your issues to the throne. All right? Bring them. God will answer. Sometimes miraculously, sometimes not. He hasn't always answered. It's always funny. People I, I talk with here, out in the culture, Pastor, send one up for me because I know you got a direct line. No, I really don't, and I can prove it to you. The number of times that God has said no, the number of times that I've asked for A and God has given me X. Yeah, but you, well, what do you do? You come to him. You come to him. You don't have to live like this. But without repentance, that cycle continues until we get to this point. God gave them over. Those may be the four most horrifying words I've ever read in the Bible. And that judgment continues with the fifth bowl. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Same song, different verse. That little, here's what's going on. God's saying that little kingdom that you pledged yourself to, whatever, whatever it was the beast promised you, and now you begin to see I'm taking it back. That pathetic little self-rule that you've set up, you're making your own destiny, you're living your best life now. You're, there's not going to be anything left of that when I'm done. And I'm doing that for your good. And this is 
This is a cry out of the heart of God. I warned you this day was coming, and you didn't listen. And the response of the people is they gnaw at their tongues, which is another way of saying they inflict pain upon themselves. Okay, It's that old adage of somebody going to the doctor saying, it hurts when I do this. <laughs> right? That's what's happening. It's insanity. They curse God. They refuse to repent. They say to their creator, this is your fault. You know, I, and, and I see this, I see this in sexual immorality and all the confusion around all this stuff that our culture's facing right now. I, I see it in paganism, even within the church, pagan worship. I see it in self-righteous people. Yeah, thoroughly, upstanding, manly, Republican voting, conservative, family-centered, tithing, Mean as hell, people. I see it in you too. That self-righteousness is going to send you to hell just as quick as the paganism you condemn. And we see that here. We see that here. You know what all those people have in common? All of them. It's a refusal to repent. You know where that comes from? The need to always be right, even when you're in the presence of God. If that's your disposition, I fear for you. John continues with bowl number six, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So God's drying up the water, but it's not just about taking away the water supply. It's about clearing a path for a conflict. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. And they assembled them. In other words, all right, I'm clearing up the water supply. I'm making way for for rivaling armies, basically, to meet each other. And the place they meet at is a Hebrew place called, and if it says Armageddon, that's wrong. That's a mistranslation. The actual word is Mount Megiddo. And Megiddo was the site in Scripture of some very notable battles. I'll give you some reference points here. Judges chapter 5 Also, 2 Kings chapter 23, you can find major battles happening at Mount Megiddo. Why does John mention Mount Megiddo? Because it's a reference point, and when his first readers read Mount Megiddo, they would think the same thing that you and I think when we hear a word like Antietam or Omaha Beach. We think battle. We think violence. We think bloodshed. And the sixth bowl involves God drying up this river, making the land easier to cross. And so this sixth plague is God accelerating global conflict in the world. It is God's removal of last restraint from humanity. You think about that for a minute. When the last measures of divine restraint are removed from a people already demonically influenced. The result is unspeakable violence. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Jesus told us in John chapter 8, Satan is a liar and a murderer, and those two go together. 
they go together. You see violence against a sovereign nation like what we're watching in Ukraine right now. I mean, they're not even aiming at military targets anymore, targeting theaters and places where children are, for crying out loud. And you see violence in our cities the way we did in the summer of 2020, the lawlessness and the just disregard for any sense of order. When you see the kind of raw rebellion against God-ordained authority on January the 6th, when you see violence in our schools, shootings and other kind of things, when you see violence in the womb, I don't know how much more graphic an example of depravity there could be than what we do to unborn children in this country. Behind every bit of that is a liar. There's lies that drive that crap. Because death and deception are kissing cousins. And every bit of that here comes to a grand crescendo. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. And the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wind of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Now, some of you may be thinking, but now, Pastor, at the beginning of this series, you told us that this was not to be understood literally. That's true. Okay, so 100-pound hailstones is not literal. No. It's worse. It's worse. Oftentimes, symbolism is used, particularly in prophetic utterances, because it's so horrible, the only thing we can do is come up with the most horrible picture we can think of. That's what's happening here. Now, over the last couple thousand years, there's been a lot of ink spilled trying to identify Babylon. Okay, who's Babylon here? Robert Mounts, the Australian New Testament scholar, his work is in the lower lobby. I have consulted it in putting this message together among many others, and it's out there for you to consult as well, if you'd like to. Dr. Mount says, Babylon is undoubtedly the Roman Empire. The Protestant reformers, Calvin, Luther, Zwingli, others, said that Babylon was, and I quote, obviously the Catholic papacy. Today, there's a number of folks, including Danny Aiken, a friend of mine, his work also is out there for you to consult, who believes this is representative of a one-world government that's coming into the future. We'll cover more on all of that next week. Here's what I've found among those variety of opinions. The thing all those men hold in common is they're equally sure of themselves. Tis the job of a scholar, I guess. Wherever you land on that, okay, there's no orthodox position here, okay? There's, there's just an understanding that we see through a glass darkly that we are trying to get it with, with all of our hearts and minds wrapped around this. But here's the big idea regardless of where you land. The message is that all earthly power and all earthly authority and all earthly influence and all that access that you've been depending on to the extent that you would either pervert or just outright abandon your allegiance to Jesus in order to be marked by that. All of that authority, Jesus is telling you in this text, it was inherently mine to begin with. And when this moment comes, I'm going to take it back. I'm going to take it back. My wrath 
is being emptied against any and all rival authorities on the earth, and I will make them drink down every last drop. This is the final consummation of the wrath of God. It is unavoidably an awful thing to behold. But there's hope here. There's hope. Let me tell you what we should see. Let me give you some challenges for this moment based upon what we read here. The first one is this. We need to learn to see God for who he is and embrace him for who he is. We live in a culture of me first. I know we talk about others and all this stuff, but even when we're serving others, we take a selfie of it and we put it on Instagram. It's about us, okay? Me first. Me first thinking is deadly. I'm going to tell you why. It's because I'm not ultimate reality. Does that surprise y'all? Yeah. I'm not. Neither are you. Neither are you. We do this thing with our kids. Well, we used to when they were younger. They've gotten, they've gotten accustomed to it now. Becca, I'm going to put your mic back, I promise. So imagine this is one of our kids, and they're having, as my daddy used to say, a spell. Okay? And, and they are just being absolutely unreasonable. And, and their mother and I, we haven't done this in years. We should bring this back because I think it's really cool. We would just start doing this. All right? And they would, they would be like, now I'm dizzy. And so they would, they would be like, what are you doing? And we would say, we are the world revolving around you. <laughs> right? So, I, but that's all of us, isn't it? Like we all have that tendency to be kind of myopic and, and it's, the universe doesn't revolve around you. It was not built for your glory or mine or mine. I'm telling you, we we got all these abuse scandals running around from Ravi Zacharias to God knows who else is going to be revealed before it's over with. There's a lot of really famous preachers who forgot that Jesus says nothing is hidden that will not one day be revealed. I mean, loads of them right now. And, and they, they, it's like they didn't realize it. And the response from way too many in the religious community is, what about their legacy? What about their legacy? What about my legacy? Even if I'm faithful to the end, by God's grace, who gives a crap about Joel Rainey's legacy? Zizendorf says, you preach the gospel, you die, and then you be forgotten. And there is so much freedom in that, guys. I'm telling you, when you you finally realize it's not in my position, it's not in where I'm going, it's not not in what I'm going to be remembered for even. This universe was built for the glory of God. I find my purpose, my fulfillment. I hear him. I I hear him laugh. I feel his smile when I plug into that and I stop thinking about me. Because repentance, deliverance, the very consummation that's promised in Revelation, it starts with that very clear picture of God, his holiness, his perfection the consistency of his moral law, the inflexible and therefore unchangeable and therefore 100% wholly dependable creator. He can be counted on. In the scriptures where even an encounter with, with an angel, just a thin little small slice of a manifestation of God's glory, people fell on their faces like they were dead. We treat revivals like they're some kind of frat party. That's why you got people, oh, praise Jesus, I'm saved. And then 48 hours later, they're still gripping a dang liquor bottle. 
Don't tell me you've encountered the living God. Not the one described here, because you don't do that crap after you encounter that God. He's going to change you. I hate what revivalism has done to the church. I really do. Another sermon for another day. That's where your hope starts. That's where your hope starts. So see God for who he is. Number two, see yourself honestly. John Calvin, that second generation reformer, said that godly wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. So I got to start with God, otherwise I have no accurate reference point for sizing up myself. But once I see God for who he is, now I've got a reference point, right? Now my identity, everything about me can be rightly understood. And so when I get to a place that I start to behave in a way reflective of these subjects of God's wrath that have been described here, I have forgotten myself. You ever tell your kids that? You have forgotten yourself. You've forgotten your place. Okay. I, I remember as a teen, I, I struggled with anger. And, and my, my dad was like, he's trying to channel it. And that's what fathers, that, we got to do that with our kids, right? You don't ignore that stuff. You don't ignore that. For the sake of your future daughter-in-law, don't ignore that crap. Deal with it fiercely in your home. But don't do it by turning your boy into a girl. All right? You, you got to take that aggression. You got to channel it. You got to channel it. And I remember distinctly just one of those moments, and I guess my father could just see it coming. And he said, boy, go out in the backyard and just hit the oak tree. And I did. It didn't end well for me. <laughs> There's always somebody bigger, right? There's always something, right? You, you that's, that's what we've got to realize here. The presence of God is an oak tree. You, you do yourself no favors trying to assert something of yourself that is not true because it's not who God created you to be. Give yourself over to him by, by having a clear picture of God, having a, a clear and honest picture of yourself. And, and you do that, here's how you get there. This is the last thing. Stop accusing and start repenting. Anything less than what I just read here, the wrath that I've just seen unfolded, the eternal absence of the loving presence of God, anything less than an eternity in hell is God's immeasurable grace towards someone like me. Let's not talk about fairness and what I deserve when we're in the presence of the king. You're not going to like where that leads. But this God doesn't want to send us there. He is being gracious to you right now. When we started out, is this the word of the Lord? Yeah. These are awful pictures, but they're good for your soul. He reveals them because he loves you. And the only proper response to that kind of love is repentance. God created you in his image and likeness with immeasurable worth. If you are human, that is who you are. He gave you the opportunity of his presence in all of his glory and in response, you, me, and our parents and their parents before them and their parents before them, all the way back to our first parents, looked at that offering and stood in our sin and said, no thanks, to an infinitely holy being. That's why we're in the mess we're in. We are where we are because we choose to be. 
But the story doesn't end there, does it? Like I said, this is a slice. It's a culmination of judgment, and it's awful, but it is not the end of the story. The rest of Revelation comes next. It cannot happen until this is first revealed. And what we know is that Jesus Christ took on human flesh, lived the life that God created you and I to live, which we are now incapable to live, and even in the beginning, we're unwilling to live a life of absolute perfection. And because the very nature of God requires his constant, immovable opposition to sin, Jesus absorbed that too. When he stretched out his arms on a cross and he died as our substitute, you are only under the wrath of God if you choose to be. He is good and he loves you. He has done everything necessary to demonstrate that. And we are fast, closer with every 24-hour period. We're an hour closer now than we were when we started toward that day in which these things are going to be unfolded and unveiled for us. Jesus asked, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Some of you need to be asked. You need to ask yourself. Are you really giving up your soul for that? Are you? What we have seen here with abundant clarity is the tribulation, the violence, the sin, the rebellion, the judgment. It's all being directed by a sovereign God through repeated historical cycles and toward an ultimate end. And when it's over, that world that you have gained becomes nothing. But today, you can exchange that, which eventually will become nothing, and you can gain everything. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. We get to talk about that next, and it can be yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you tell us the truth, even when it is sometimes repulsive. You do not hold back from us the things that we need to know, and you call us, like David in the 139th Psalm, to run to you to say, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there's any grievous way in me. Lord, may that be the heart's cry of every person in this room, everyone listening to us or watching us from home today. May they come to know the Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have made that truth known. Glorify yourself in the coming moments. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.